This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Our hot question of the day today has to do with this dilemma we find ourselves in when it comes to ride hailing in B.C., Yes, of course, I know we don't have it yet. We keep thinking that by the end of this year, we're going to get it. But we are rapidly coming up to December 1st, and we are still waiting, waiting for the Passenger Transportation Board to say all is okay and the companies can go ahead. In fact, like Uber and Lyft have said, listen, we could get going in a matter of days at this point. All they need is the okay. So that's why we thought this story out of London, England today was so interesting. Uber's license to operate in London is not going to be renewed according to the transportation authority in that city because regulators say that they were not satisfied with the safety measures that Uber has been undertaking. They said there's still too many cases of the drivers that you didn't hire. Essentially, you get into the car, you think this is your driver. It's got the picture and everything, but they said there was too many ways for people who were not the legit driver to still pick you up and claim it was Uber. Uh, They said drivers were able to create fake accounts, uh, create accounts and take fares, and they just were not happy with Uber's uh, ability to address this and take care of the situation. So they said, that's it, we're done. They've been working, they're trying to work with Uber for about a year and a half on this, and they say, haven't gotten anywhere. So you're talking 45,000 Uber drivers in the city of London who will now have to find another mode of work. There are other ride-hailing apps available in London, and of course, they have their very famous black cabs, which by the way, we're going to be talking about later. The knowledge test to become a black cab driver in London is one of the most toughest, they said, one of the toughest in the world to do anything. It is a very difficult test. So there's a big difference there. We thought, well, in light of what had happened in London, England, then today with them saying no to Uber, you're going to have to leave here. We wanted to know for our hot question, how does that make you feel about us even getting started with a ride hailing company like Uber in BC? Do you make, does it make you go, yeah, no, I'm still okay with it. Or do you think we should hit pause and say, wait a minute, let's think twice here and make sure these issues that London is bringing up are addressed before we let them operate here? Because once the cat's out of the bag, kind of hard to get them to change their ways. But if they really want to operate here, can we make them do all that before they actually get underway? So go to our hot question of the day. You'll find it online, simisarah980 or at cknw. You can email me as well, simi at cknw.com and use our buzz line, 604-331-2899. We want to know, given that London, England is saying that no, we're not going to renew Uber's license to operate in that city, We want to know how that makes you feel about Uber coming to BC. Do you go, yeah, no, I'm still okay with it. Or do you say, let's think twice about this. Let's see how we feel about this. Check that out. Lots of votes already coming in here. 64% of people who voted so far are saying they're okay with it, but 36% saying let's think twice. So go ahead and cast your vote. We'll be talking more about it on the show today. It is day 25 of the transit strike here in Metro Vancouver, and a lot of people are dreading the end of the week, which is a bit unusual. Usually we look forward to the end of the week, but because of the strike, looks like many people are very apprehensive, and rightfully so, about what's going to happen on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday when we have a shutdown of bus and C-bus services. So this hour, TransLink CEO Kevin Desmond has been having a press conference talking to the public about the extra 
resources that are being added to the other parts of the transit network, which will still be available to try and help you keep moving during the transit strike. Some of the numbers that he said today, more than 100,000 students use transit to get classes every day, get to classes every day. There are about 150,000 or so workers who use transit. And in that group too, tens of thousands of them don't have a car or a driver's license for that matter. So what is still running? SkyTrain? Canada Line, West Coast Express will still be operating this week. West Vancouver Transit will also be running. Those blue buses, they said. But people there, they said, should also keep in mind that the 257, that Horseshoe Bay route, will not be running. Handy Dart will continue to run, but they said expect delays due to the increased demand. But... What do you do with all these passengers who are so used to using the buses, rely on those buses, need those buses? Well, Kevin Desmond had something to say about that. Here are some of the plans that they're putting in place in and around the SkyTrain network. Now, about half of SkyTrain's ridership gets to SkyTrain by a bus. So we're trying to make it easier for people during a work disruption of the bus system to drop off and pick up at SkyTrain stations, kiss and ride, uh, if you will. Together with our municipal partners, we've been looking to designate temporary passenger pickups and drop-off zones near SkyTrain and West Coast Express stations during the strike. Make it a little easier to access West Coast Express and SkyTrain. We'll also look to temporarily allow drop-offs and pickups at unused bus stops and bus loops. SkyTrain operations. Um, There will be more Expo and Millennium Line service primarily during the off-peak period when we have available extra trains, and SkyTrain personnel will be actively monitoring crowds to adjust frequency levels as necessary. There will also be more SkyTrain personnel um, in the stations and around, as well as transit police to assist our customers. That is TransLink CEO Kevin Desmond talking about the ways in which they're trying to beef up the services that will be available Wednesday, Thursday, Friday this week with the bus strike and sea bus strike. But what if your commute involves riding your bike, so cycling and the bus? We will be temporarily relaxing the rules and allowing bikes on SkyTrain during peak periods. But we ask that riders please try to use the last car of each train to bring your bikes. We all know if you ride SkyTrain uh, at all, having a bike on the train when it's crowded, it can be difficult. So we ask uh, both bikers and and regular customers to be patient and respectful uh, of one another during that temporary um, allowance for for bikes on the trains. Wait, what? Because at peak periods, people can't even get on SkyTrain without a bus strike. And you're saying now on peak periods during a bus strike, you're going to let people bring their bikes on? I don't even know how they're going to manage that. I don't know how they're going to squeeze their bikes on these trains, which are probably going to be packed. Now, extra Moby bikes, they said, are going to be provided around SkyTrain stations, and they will make extra bike parking available as well. Now, if you want to carpool, perhaps, or use a car share service of some kind, Kevin Desmond has this for you. Carpooling agencies like GobiRide and Lyft Tango are increasing service levels throughout Metro Vancouver. Our car sharing partners like Evo, Cartago are expanding their drop-off and pickup boundaries. We also have our van pooling um, uh, service to UBC still available 
for UBC students and employees. We've also been working with employers throughout the region, and we continue to uh, encourage employers to reach out uh, to us at TransLink. Uh, we can um, offer whatever options uh, may be available to their employees. Where possible, we would be urging employers to allow uh, their employees to flex their work schedules uh, or to uh, telecommute. I know that's not an easy option for many, many types of businesses, but to the extent possible, uh, that would probably be helpful. And if you can, um, people should seek out an opportunity to carpool, to help get around. I've been amazed uh, to learn about the various online groups that have formed already, connecting friends, colleagues, and neighbors with opportunities to share a ride. That is TransLink CEO Kevin Desmond having a press conference this past hour uh, laying out some alternatives to for people to get around on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of this week. So they're kind of beefing up any SkyTrain, all the SkyTrain routes that are available, uh, trying to help out with more bike parking and accessibility. Now, TransLink data scientists are projecting an extra 36,000 cars on the road because of the shutdown of the bus network. So they are asking everyone out there, even the people who think that they're not going to be impacted by this, to be mindful of that and to allow extra time. So even if you never take transit and you drive every day, it's still going to impact you. So you are also in your car going to need to allow some extra time to get where you're going on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Kevin Desmond said that he expects that congestion to be spread right across the region. So transit alerts and trip planners are available on the TransLink website. And of course, we will continue to have updates for you all day long during the shutdown. So stay tuned to us for the latest on that. Uh, I should mention here, we're also expecting an update from Unifor coming up on the noon hour today. So we will have that for you as well. There's been a lot of pressure on the union and Coast Mountain Bus Company to get back to the table. In fact, Kevin Desmond was saying that as well. Uh, So as he wrapped up that press conference, he had this message for Unifor. We all know that this is going to be a very difficult few days. I sincerely wish this this would not be happening. I urge the union not to punish the transit users of this region. There is still time to end this. Coast Mountain Bus Company wants wants a deal to get done, and they would like to get a deal done as quickly as possible. They have repeatedly asked the union to to come back to the bargaining table. They've repeatedly asked the union to submit to impartial third-party mediation. There's an offer on the table right now that gives the drivers guaranteed rest times. There's an offer on the table right now that gives drivers and mechanics higher wages, higher in fact than other public sector settlements. The offer on the table now is fair and reasonable. It's time to bargain and not issue ultimatums. That's why I'm asking the union once again today, put this unnecessary strike aside. Agree to come back to the table and to impartial third-party mediation. It's one of the best ways to resolve differences at the table. Deals get done at the table. One way or the other, when this is over, there's going to be a settlement. So I ask, why do we have to inconvenience and disrupt the lives of hundreds of thousands of people in this region when fair, good-faith bargaining can ultimately help strike a deal that is that both sides find acceptable. Both sides have to find it acceptable. That is the workers, 
and that is Coast Mountain Bus Company. So finally, the people of, bus West, uh, of Metro Vancouver, I believe, are resilient. And it's time now more than ever for the people of this region to help each other out and come together during the course of a bus shutdown. That is Kevin Desmond, the CEO of TransLink, urging the two sides to get back to the table and start negotiating. And remember, uh, when we covered this extensively here on the show, when both sides walked away from the table saying that they didn't really have anything they were agreeing on at this point. Uh, So yeah, I think everybody would like to see them back at the table or going into mediation, something like that. Hey, remember that story that we talked about a few months ago when the mayor of Surrey, Doug McCallum, suggested that he would like to see a canal built in his city. He thought it would make like a a water feature for your backyard, but on a much larger scale for the entire city. Well, he was asked about that again over the weekend, and he said those plans are still on track. Doug McCallum says the city's engineering staff continues to look for an underused road in the city to turn into a canal. That part alone makes me laugh out loud because I'm thinking, where is there an underused road anywhere in the city of Surrey? I'm guessing that's why it might be taking them a while because they're not going to find one. He said the plan is to have this canal in the Bridgeview area near the Batola Bridge. Now that is another whole thing altogether. Now he says the Bridgeview is an area he'd like to see further developed, especially along the waterfront. Hey, any waterfront area, you're right, probably would make for some good development, but Bridgeview, they've got a lot of work to do down there, I would say. Let's find out more about this now from Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown, who's been covering this story. Hi, Janet. Good morning, Simi. Yes, it was back in June the mayor told an audience of several hundred people in Surrey that uh, he would like to see a canal through the city of Surrey. And he talked about it going from the Fraser River, going south into South Surrey and through some of the farmland. And he said that he actually had the engineering staff at the city looking for, as you say, an underused road to turn into that canal. Well, I caught up with the mayor on Friday at an event in Surrey. He was opening supportive housing or putting the shovels in the ground for the supportive housing. And I thought, you know, I wonder what's happening with that plan with the canal. And so here's some of our conversations, Simi. Something we haven't heard about from you in a while, you had said you had asked your engineering department, I think, to look for a road that was underused in the city to perhaps look at putting a canal there. Do you have any update on that for us? Yeah, we're still looking, especially down in Bridgeview right now. Um, We've actually got some models and pictures of other cities around the world that have um, the same, similar as our um, bridge, um, bridge uh, water or uh, Bridgeview uh, area, um, where they divert a little bit, for instance, down there of the Fraser to doing a big arc around and then enter back into the Fraser. And so we're, we're looking at that at a basis, but uh, at this time it's only um, trying to work with um, the development down in Bridgeview. And, um, and that's proceeding fairly well, but... Uh, Bridgeview is very um, divided into small lots, so it's hard to put a number of lots together in it. But we're working away on it. It's still our vision to be looking at it in the future. So developing that whole area down there as part of this canal. Yeah, we're going to look at that whole area. It's a big priority for us to develop. There is quite a bit of development happening already down there, and our new three rinks is down there. But it's an area we've long um, thought about, um, and especially, and it's been a big belief for me that um, 
that we need to develop the waterfront down there. And so we're working very, very hard to see whether we can develop the waterfront, which um, would be a continuous uh, walkway down there. Um, when I was mayor before, we did buy a, a chunk of land down there, and we did park, uh, a park, which is right under Batella Street Bids. But we want to continue that along the river. So it is a priority for us to look down there. All right. So, Janet, I have two questions after listening to that. One is, that's very different from the original kind of canal plan that he mm-hmm. envisioned. This sounds just more like a redevelopment of Bridgeview. Fine. Second, though, this sounds like a very big infrastructure plan. Are all the other councillors on board? You make some very good points, Simi. Yes, he initially, as I say, was talking about running the canal from the Fraser River to South Surrey. Now he's talking about it sort of taking a horseshoe loop through Bridgeview. Yeah. And I posted some of the mayor's comments on Twitter this morning, and the first to respond was City Councillor Jack Hundile. And here's what he said, Simi. Say what? Where is that in the budget? And then he went on to say, like so many things, quote, we hear it from the media first. Hmm. Better to invest in our youth and seniors, maybe a rink in Cloverdale, a proper rec center in Newton. And he said this is not listed as a proposed major general capital project. And Mr. Hundile also quoted uh, on a tweet saying, 1% of the road levy was removed in last year's budget, and it's not in the budget again this year exclamation, question mark, question mark, exclamation. And then that prompted the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade, Anita Huberman, to also wade into it, saying, you know, something like this needs major planning, major capital, input from business, input from the public. What is going on here? So it's, yeah, generated a lot of a response on Twitter. That's for sure, Simi. Well, I could imagine because I was thinking, well, yeah, this is a big plan. If you want to do a horseshoe canal through the Bridgeview area, there's a ton of businesses there. They've already started to do some redevelopment there. Wouldn't this kind of be on the agenda? Wouldn't they have to be talking about this, public consultation, that kind of thing? Uh, you would think, but, you know, you make a good point. The Bridgeview area has, for how many years, how many decades, been known as Auto Wrecker Alley, really. But there is a lot of redevelopment going down in the Bridgeview area, and it's exciting to see. Of course, as the mayor mentioned, there's this new ice complex with three new sheets of ice, new condos being built across the street with retail on the bottom. Uh, there's a new microbrewery. There's yeah. a couple of fast food restaurants. Things are really taking off down there. And um, as the mayor says, he would like to... To make use of Surrey's waterfront, which not only includes Crescent Beach, but the north part of Surrey as well in the Bridgeview area. But, you know, other people online saying, hey, wait a minute, Bridgeview is below sea level. Well, so that's that okay, that was my other question. <laughs> a bunch of problems, too. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was my other thing. I was significant like, problems. if you wanted to start a canal in Bridgeview, I was like, good luck getting that uphill, right? Because if you wanted, but the horseshoe, once he described it as the horseshoe, I thought, oh, okay, well, that makes more sense because at least you can contain it there but again it is yeah under sea level there so so many questions janet mm-hmm. lots of questions but you know when this first surfaced back in june when the when the mayor sort of uh, threw it out there at this this meeting and and announced this i contacted the city engineering department and i said hey are you indeed looking for an underused road as the mayor says you are and they said yeah it's definitely on our radar it's uh, something we're looking at and now the mayor's saying he's got uh, you know things are progressing well and there's actually pictures in in the engineering department apparently of uh, cities around the world that have canals and you know it's not only venice 
who has canals. It's San Antonio, Texas. It's a beautiful part of Texas, San Antonio with the canals, if anybody's ever been there. So, you know, um, stranger things have happened, right? You know, you got to dream big as the mayor. You're the leader of the city. Who knows? But yeah, you would think that the councillors would be aware of this. Well, that's my only uh, concern that here, right? Something in the budget. Yeah. So, you know, maybe the mayor's just dreaming and thinking out loud to me, a reporter. I don't know, but it sounds like things are progressing according to the mayor if you talk to him. So All there you right. Have it. Well, thank you very much for that, Janet. Appreciate it. Thanks. That is Janet Brown, our Global News senior reporter. Yeah, no problem with the vision. Like the way he described it there is a lot better, I think, than the way he described it earlier this year. For everybody out there who thinks it's high time that we here in BC got Uber, Lyft, or other ride-hailing companies, well, you want to pay attention to this next story for sure. Certainly caught my attention this morning reading that over in London, England, the transport authority in that major, major city announced today it is not renewing Uber's license to operate in the British capital. And we are talking a company that has something like 45,000 drivers under its wing there. Transport for London cites, quote, several breaches that placed passengers and their safety at risk. Now, Uber is going to be appealing. And in the meantime, they are still operating. Uh, so they're still waiting to find out more about that. But we thought, let's get the breakdown here. Like, what happened? What are the concerns? And should we be heeding them at this point? Joining us now is Kit Bradshaw, Sky News reporter in central London. Kit, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. So first off, tell us what has happened with Uber in London. It's been a really long-running battle here in London between the Transport Authority, Transport for London, who's the regulator of taxi apps like Uber, and Uber itself. It was actually more than two years ago that transport bosses originally said they had problems with Uber and were going to revoke their license. That was way back in September 2017. But Uber took them to court and appealed that decision, and the court granted them a 15-month operating license. Now, that took us all the way to September, and transport bosses again said they had concerns about safety. That's brought us to today, and they've said that they're not going to grant them the license. Okay, and-, and the main reason they've given is that this safety and security concerns, and that's the real issue that transport bosses aren't happy with, with how Uber works. And what kind of safety and concern issues? What's been happening? Well, Transport for London has said that basically they can't guarantee that the driver that picks you up when you order an Uber is the same person who's registered on the app. They say there's a flaw in the system which has allowed drivers to, who aren't the registered license holder, basically, to drive the taxi, to upload their photo onto another person's account and pick you up. So you could order an Uber, and it could say that it's John Smith, who's a registered Uber driver, but that driver's been able to change the photo to one of his friends who's borrowing his car for the night, and he comes and picks you up. And he might not be licensed, he might not be registered, he might not have a criminal record check. And officials are saying that's a really big concern because Uber just can't guarantee that the driver that collects you is the person who's licensed to use that vehicle. And they say that's happened in 14,000 trips. And that's one of the reasons they've taken this decision today. How popular, though, is Uber in London? What kind of an impact is this going to have? Oh, yeah, like many global cities, as you'd imagine, where Uber is allowed to operate, it has become incredibly popular over the last few years. Uber itself says that 
Three and a half million people use the app in London, and they actually have 45,000 registered drivers in the city uh, to, to use the app. And that's led to a huge explosion in the number of what we call minicabs here, not black cabs like a London black cab that everyone knows, but minicabs like Uber. It's, it's led to a huge growth in their numbers. They've almost doubled, and there's now over 100,000 minicabs working for lots of different apps. Uh, in London. So it really has surged in popularity over the last few years. And there are questions now about what will happen. I mean, it doesn't mean that it's banned overnight because Uber is going to appeal this decision like it did last time. So people will still be able to use Uber in London until the courts have had a look at this decision and see if they agree with the decision that Transport for London took. So there's no overnight impact in that sense. But yeah, millions of people use it in the city. So potentially, if the courts uphold this decision, a massive impact on how people get around London. So what is the difference then between signing up to drive for one of like Uber versus having a black cab? Are the rules more stringent for cabs? Yeah, absolutely. There's a a lot of differences, actually. There's there's far more testing for black cabs. That's one of the reasons why they have this reputation um, as being some of the best taxi drivers in the world. You have to do something called the knowledge, which is a really advanced test. Um, It's a written exam that all the black cab drivers have to sit on how to get people from different locations. So they'll have to go and take this exam and and one of the questions might be, how do you get the quickest way from Big Ben to Buckingham Palace? That's an easy one, obviously. It might be Euston Station or King's Cross, and, and they have to know that. So whereas Uber drivers and other minicab drivers, they have far less detailed exams and checks. They need to have a criminal record check. They need to have a valid driving license. And there are some language checks as well. But they have far um, less of a high bar to meet. Um, and that's one of the reasons why black cabs are far more expensive and Uber drivers. And as you can imagine, the, uh, the union that represents black cab drivers has really welcomed this decision. They've said it's the right decision and uh, Uber hasn't been claimed by the rules, in their opinion. But Uber is going to test this, uh, this decision. As I said, it's, it's important to stress that Uber says this is the wrong decision. They say they've changed how they've operated over the past two years. They disagree that they haven't put the, uh, the required safety measures in place. And, and they are adamant that they are going to appeal this through the courts and continue to operate in the meantime. So in the meantime, even though you've had Uber for years, there are still black cabs though, right? Like that industry does exist side by side with Uber? Oh, completely. Absolutely. Yeah, there there are still lots and lots of black cabs and they've actually recently, the last year or so, brought out a a brand new vehicle, the company that manufactures them. They brought out a hybrid electric vehicle to try and get with the times and they've started phasing out the old diesel black cabs. So uh, black cabs aren't going anywhere. It's it's part of London, and it's part of London's culture. The difference with Uber is black cabs tend to only operate in the central London, as it's called, the very centre of the city, whereas you can get an Uber anywhere in Greater London, which is a far bigger area. Uh, if you look at a map, right. you know, Greater London has a population of around 9 million people versus just the touristy centre of the capital. Okay, then, so Kit, this is not over yet from what you've explained there. This is still going to go to court. Still going to go to court. Uber says they're going to appeal it, and that means they can continue to operate and the courts will have to to look at what the decision that's been made. Last time it went to the courts, they were granted a sort of a 15-month extension, so a short extension. So it's not over yet, and this will rumble on for many months probably to come. All right, Kit, thank you so much. Thanks, Annie.
That's Kit Bradshaw, Sky News reporter in central London, explaining to us the whole Uber situation over in London today. And I thought there were some interesting notes and parallels for us to observe there as well. One, those concerns about Uber, about that not being your driver when you get in the vehicle, that's a big downside because most people, that's the big safety issue that Uber, that they like about Uber is that you know who it is because of the picture. So if that's a problem, yeah, I think people would have concerns about that. But also... I mean, that's the case with taxis here as well, right? Your taxi driver is not necessarily the person who owns the medallion or the license. They may have lent it out to a friend. They may, you know, have other people working that cab. So we have those concerns about taxi drivers here as well, which led me to take a little bit of a deeper look into the black cab kind of taxi system, the cab system in a city like London. And man, oh man, we started talking about this here at work. Did you know that in order to become a black cab driver... In London, you must pass what is called the knowledge test. And the knowledge test has been summarized, and I was reading about this in the New York Times today. It's possibly the most difficult test in the world. And so that's why becoming a black cab driver is such a big deal. Anybody can be an Uber driver if they pass a security check and have their proper license. But to be a black cab driver in London, you have to go through a system that is absolutely grueling. For instance, to achieve the required standard to be licensed, you need a thorough knowledge, they said, primarily of the area within a six-mile radius of Charing Cross. Here is just an example of what they expect you to know in detail, not consulting GPS, not consulting an atlas or anything like that. The tester will get in the car and tell you to go from A to B, and if you don't take the best route possible by their standard, you will fail this test. You need to know all the streets, all the housing estates, all the parks and open spaces, all the government offices and departments, all the finance and commerce centers, diplomatic premises, town halls, registry offices, hospitals, places of worship, sports stadiums, leisure centers, <laughs> airlines offices, stations, hotels, clubs, theaters, cinemas, museums, art gal- Like I'm just listing, there's still way more to come. They expect you to know every single address without having to look it up in that six-mile radius. And they said the description actually underestimates the knowledge test because it's this whole process that you have to go through. You do it like three times and every single time it gets harder and harder and you have to get better and better, which is why the black cabs cost so much more, right? But as you heard Kit also explain there, there's room for both in London. So the black cab industry continues and the ride hailing industry continues as well. And Uber isn't the only ride-hailing company that operates there. There are others uh, that operate. So even if Uber does go away, there will be others that will kind of try to step in and fill that void. But it also prompted us to ask the question today on our hot question of the day, in light of what has happened in London, how does that make you feel about the potential of Uber coming to BC? Do you say, yeah, I'm still okay with it? Or does it make you pause and go, okay, wait a minute, we should think twice here. Taking a look at our results, hundreds of votes on this. And right now we've got 63% of people saying, I'm okay with it. And we have 37% of people who say, let's think twice. Check it out, Sarah 980 or at CKNW online. You can also email me and, of course, our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. Uh, right now, though, want to tell you about another story that, boy, this ever catch our attention today, the story in the Vancouver Sun. It has to do with the fact that more than 200, 200 former prisoners are filing claims in court 
alleging that they were sexually abused by a prison officer. That alone made us want to find out more about this. So joining us now is the Vancouver Sun reporter who wrote this, Lori Culbert. Lori, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. This is extraordinary. I've never heard of a story like this. Tell us a bit about it. So, I mean, back in 2000, this particular jail guard was convicted in criminal court of uh, sexually abusing five young male inmates in the 1980s while he was a jail guard in Ocala. And that, at the time, as you can imagine, it generated a a few headlines, but it kind of fell off the radar of most people. And uh, my colleague Dan Fumana and I were um, starting to snoop around and found out that since then, 19 years later, more than uh, 200 uh, former inmates of Ocala and several other BC jails have made allegations in civil court that they were also victimized. And as you know, uh, sexual assault is a vastly underreported crime, yes. so it's um, hard to know, you know, just what the true number is out there. So, so does this continue to come from the time that he was a guard back in the 1980s? Yeah, so this particular defendant we're talking about, a man by the name of Roderick David McDougall, was employed by BC Corrections from 1976 to 1997, so for 21 years. So even after the other conviction, he continued to be employed in the system? So no, the other conviction happened in 2000, yes. So there was a series of events that eventually led to him resigning in 1997. Um, Not not related to the sexual assault allegations, by the way, uh, and really kind of an unrelated probe that was happening in his workplace. And then in 2000, the uh, criminal trial happened. So what is it, like just plugging that name in, you can see there's lots of stories about that, but what is it about this case, Lori, do you think that exposes the system? Like, is this something that wasn't addressed at the time? Were complaints made? What happened? So what we were able to uncover, um, just earthing through so many documents that eventually were filed in the courts, is that there were co-workers uh, who worked with McDougal who were raising red flags, but that didn't it didn't appear to uh, be doing much to get him taken off the job permanently. There's one really incredible tale of a group of jail guards who were quite concerned about the well-being of young men, inmates in Ocala, and so they uh, they were concerned that the young inmates were being uh, allegedly abused in behind the closed doors of this jail guard's office. So they went and they built a different door in the uh, carpenter shop in the prison, a door that had a large window in it, so that they could replace the door and then see inside the window to see if anything bad was happening inside the office. And uh, this happened on a night shift, and they came back in the next day, and there um, uh, there was curtains and file folders and various things put up over the window to try to block people from seeing inside. So absolutely, there were people who had concerns at the time. That is extraordinary. These were fellow employees who went to those lengths because they felt something wrong was happening. Yes, they also um, made uh, submissions to management as well. And there was a series of one or two day suspensions, letters being put in a file, being removed from a file. You know, this particular individual was moved around to different or uh, different facilities. Um, but, he, but he maintained his employment for 21 years. Wow. Now, has the government 
admitted any kind of misconduct in this case? So in response, about half of the 200 civil suits have now been settled, um, many of them with either uh, payouts to the plaintiffs or, or private out-of-court settlements. And in those, the provincial government, as uh, the employer, has admitted vicarious liability. So in other words, we employed this guy, and if the courts find that the plaintiff was abused, then we'll pay up some money. Um, so, and, and the province continues to uh, to respond to these lawsuits, basically saying our first response is the assaults didn't happen. But if the court finds that they did, then we are vicariously liable. Fast forward to last month, and a lawyer has filed a, a form of class action. It's called a representative action that kind of pushes that legal argument a little bit further. He's representing 61 of these men with outstanding civil claims, and he's saying that the the province uh, should be held more uh, liable than that, not as a secondary player, but as someone who um, uh, allegedly allowed this perpetrator to prey within these prisons. The province has not responded yet to uh, that particular lawsuit that kind of tries to push the legal envelope a little bit further. Wow. So the story is so explosive, Lori, like when you go through the details and think about all the damage it has caused, how do you think it managed to stay so quiet for so long? You know, I unfortunately we've had stories like this before, where the where the plaintiffs were uh, vulnerable people with uh, not a lot of power and yeah. not a lot of voice. You don't have to look much further than the women who went missing from the downtown east side, for example. I think sometimes if if um, you know uh, the alleged victims in a story feel that they have no power and people aren't listening to them, that it's sometimes very difficult to get their voices heard. So true. Lori, thanks so much for telling us about it today. Thanks for having me on the radio. Appreciate that. That's Lori Culbert with the Vancouver Sun. Check out her story today on the Vancouver Sun website for sure. Buy a copy of the paper. It is just shocking when you read some of the details in there that more than 200 former prisoners are now filing claims in court alleging they were sexually abused by a prison officer. Uh, this goes back to the 1980s and 90s. 200 Think about that number for a moment. That is huge. All right, let's talk about our real estate market, our housing market in this province. There's this new report out by Central One Credit Union, and it says that low mortgage rates and a relatively strong economy are actually helping to fuel a recovery in the housing market all around the province. Let's find out what that recovery looks like. Joining us now is Brian Yu, Central One's Deputy Chief Economist. Brian, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. What kind of recovery? What are we looking at here? Yeah, we, well, we've seen a um, uh, pretty much a large pickup in overall sales um, environments since about the uh, spring. Um, this followed a period of, uh, I would say, some significant weakness in overall sales due to uh, various factors like the mortgage stress test and provincial policies. Um, but since about the spring, we've seen sales in Lower Mainland rise about 40% on, uh, on a trend basis. And uh, we are now seeing some signs that the, the pricing conditions are picking up as well. And we're expecting that to continue now through, uh, through the next couple of years. All right. So what do you think made that happen? You mentioned the, how it's gone up and up and up since February. Why? 
Well, I think there's been a number of factors. There's been a lot of people sitting on the sidelines uh, since the changes. Um, you know, we've continued to see employment growth in the province. We, uh, we're up about 2.5% and even stronger in the lower mainland Metro Vancouver area. Um, and the lower mortgage rates have dropped uh, considerably. We're looking at uh, rates, people getting rates at around 2.5% or even lower uh, from over 3% uh, late last year. So uh, that uh, those combined with some declining prices in the Metro Vancouver area over the last year uh, has a lot of people trying to get back into the market or at least get into the market given the uh, some uh, improvements in what they deem as affordability. Right. So then, Brian, though, is that just pent-up demand that is spending itself out or do you think this is consistent and steady? Well, when we're looking at the the overall economy, it looks like we are we have slowed a bit from where we were last year, um, but we're still seeing a pretty steady uh, growth. Employment numbers are, are very strong in the Metro Vancouver area. Unemployment rates are very low, so there's still quite a few people who are number one moving into the province, finding jobs, and uh, looking for uh, looking for homes. And with that low mortgage rate environment, uh, expect to continue. Uh, right now, we're still seeing that uh, we're going to see uh, home sales, for example, rise about 20% in the Metro Vancouver area next year and prices as for annually uh, annual prices rising about three and a half percent. Now, is that a concern though? Well, like you're talking about home sales, the market improving twenty percent—that's a lot. But prices three and a half percent. At some point, do we become concerned about the price increases? I think we will. I think next year and the year after, we're going to be seeing some uh, further challenges. People are going to be looking at that affordability. We're we're still not a low-priced market, even with last year's decline of about 10% in the uh, uh, overall pricing environment. So I think that as we start creeping up and as we start seeing those uh, prices rise, we will be talking about affordability. And uh, part of this is also influenced by the uh, the rental market. The rental market has a vacancy rate of, of around 1.5%. We've done some work, I think, uh, on the policy front and some new rental builds uh, to address it. But I think that uh, the uh, the vacancy issue is going to be a continued problem with uh, with rent hikes around the 45 to 5% range. And do you think the like the uh, decrease in prices has also made a difference here? I mean, overall, when you talk about the peak of the market, you know, 10 to 20% is a huge drop in prices, but that's what a lot of areas saw. Um, yeah, they, they definitely dropped off uh, following the uh, mortgage stress tests in uh, early 2018 and the various policy measures. But I, I think all that really did was, number one, constrain some of the underlying demand that was there. So there were still a lot of people looking for property wanting to be to get into the market, but were, again, constrained by various policies. And with those mortgage rates declining as much as they have and those uh, lower prices, those individuals are have gotten off the sidelines. And we should remember that this market and, and the region is still a growing area. It's not that we're, uh, we haven't, we're not seeing flat population. We're continuing to see uh, a large number of people coming into the Vancouver area each year. And what they're looking for is a shelter, whether it be rental or whether it be a home ownership. So what's going to be bought up though? Like, are we seeing increases right across the board in terms of activity or is it at the lower end, the higher end? Where is it? I think right now what we're seeing is that the condo apartment market has picked up a little more steam. Uh, the detached market uh, still remains, um, I would say, relatively softer. Um, the luxury products uh, uh, may be starting to move a little bit more now, but it's still pretty uh, weak in the market right now. So, again, a lot of those um, uh, cha- those changes to the pricing and um, uh, lower borrowing costs is really going to fuel that, uh, that entry-level buyer. We're also looking at some positives in terms of the, uh, in terms of the overall sales flow, 
being driven by some government policy of the first-time home buyers incentive, where the government is providing some uh, support in terms of the down payment side. Um, so it's going to be, um, uh, I think that the overall environment is still supportive of housing going forward, largely because of all these, uh, these factors in play. How do you think BC measures up compared to other provinces at this point? Uh, right now, in terms of we have seen already recoveries across Canada in uh, overall sales flow and, and even pricing, Ontario and Toronto are doing quite well in terms of um, uh, the fact that the prices are rising in those markets. And, and it really kind of speaks to, I, I think, some of the, uh, the higher priced, uh, the higher priced BC market, as well as some of our provincial uh, policies that, attempt, uh, that really tempered the uh, sales flow uh, in 2018 onwards. Um, other parts of the province or other parts of, the, of Canada uh, seem to have lower prices or generally do have lower prices than BC and they weren't hit as hard as uh, by these policies. Does it surprise you though, like a recovery? We didn't like completely go in the tank when it came to housing, but certainly people got quite spooked, but a recovery so soon, what does that say? Yeah, I, I think that I'm, I was surprised at how quickly we did revert uh, in terms of the uh, from from where we were in the spring. Uh, it was a very weak market, and again, I think this again points to the fact that there were so many people on the sidelines waiting to get back into the market or get into the market. And again, with those lower those lower mortgage rates, it really created a, an opening for a lot of individuals who thought this was just an opportune time, given prices had declined about ten percent already and their borrowing costs had dropped so uh, so dramatically. All right, we'll see Brian. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's Brian Yu, Central One's Deputy Chief Economist, talking about their new report that they issued about the housing market in B.C. Okay, we're going to talk about drinking and driving right now, because at this time of year in particular, I think it becomes even more of an issue. Lots of holiday parties going on, people stopping off at more events and gatherings. And so there is a real uh, step up when it comes to enforcement, I think, in the month of December. And if you're one of those people who thinks, listen, we are not doing enough to get impaired drivers off the road, This story is definitely for you because in the province of Quebec, they are really cracking down on people who drive drunk. For more on this, we're joined now by our contributor, Claire Allen. Hi, Claire. Hey, Simi. This is some harsh stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I was reading when I was looking for some comparable stats. ICBC used to say that we had the toughest impaired driving legislation in in the country. I've heard that repeatedly. Yes. But I think, well, I'm pretty sure we have just been trumped by the province of Quebec. So it was announced that starting today, motorists in Quebec convicted of drunk driving twice within 10 years will have to blow into a breathalyzer every time they attempt to start their car for the rest of their lives. Forever? Forever. So if you have two impaired driving convictions in a span of 10 years, You're forever an impaired driver. You're forever going to have to use this breathalyzer to start your car. You'll have an interlock device installed in your car that you'll have to use for the rest of your driving life. How how big of a problem is this in Quebec? Well, that's what I was wondering. So uh, Quebec's Ministry of Transport says that um, from 2013 to 2017, alcohol-related crashes killed an average of 100 people annually. And that's on top of approximately 220 serious injuries and 1,800 minor injuries. Hmm. So, I mean, it's it's an... Actually, it's a very comparable problem here. We have about 68 deaths uh, due to drunk driving. So, I mean, it's, it's higher. Well, they have more people yeah, in Quebec as well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so obviously they're really cracking down on it. This uh, Mad Canada said that this is now that Quebec is the province that has the toughest penalties now for impaired driving. 
And so I was wondering about, you know, our own driving, uh, impaired driving yeah. last year. So who do I turn to? For- uh, let me guess. <laughs> let me guess. There's one person who specializes yes, in all this. Yes, exactly. So I, I called up Paul Doroshenko of Acumen Law, and I just wanted to learn a little bit more about our current uh, impaired driving laws here in BC. Right now, as it stands, uh, if it's your first um, time and it's not an accident and the police use a roadside breath tester, in all likelihood, the punishment, uh, if a person provides a fail uh, reading on a roadside breath tester on an approved screening device, is a 90-day driving prohibition, 30-day um, vehicle impound, there's a fine, license reinstatement fee, driver risk premium, whatever insurance consequences. And, of course, the driver pays for the towing and storage of their vehicle for that 30-day impound period. So, you know, adds up to several thousand dollars and uh, and the 90-day driving prohibition. That's under B.C. law. If you provide a sample, a uh, breath sample, to an approved instrument, in other words, you're detained and taken back to a detachment, uh, or you refuse a lawful breath sample and the police decide to charge you with a criminal code offense, then uh, you're looking at fines, uh, on a first offense of a couple thousand dollars, minimum one-year driving prohibition. Um, at the end of that uh, period, uh, in all likelihood, depending on your driving record of, um, of an interlock in your vehicle, where you pay for that, of course, as well. And a course that you have to take in both circumstances, the Responsible Driver Program, uh, which is a minimum $930. It's a privately uh, offered course, but it's a sole source provider. Uh, that is um, awarded by the government uh, by a company called Stroh Healthcare. So it's a minimum one day, $930 for one day, of course. Okay, that sounds expensive, essentially. So if you get caught impaired driving in this province, it is going to cost you big time. Yeah, there's all the uh, court, like going to court, all that kind of stuff, the fines and that course that he just spoke about. That's almost $1,000 for a one-day course, so very expensive. So, you know, as we discussed earlier, what this um, this is really about is that Quebec's now saying that if you're convicted of drunk driving twice in 10 years, you're going to have an interlock device installed into your car that you'll have to breathe into every time you start your car for the rest of your life. I don't know much about interlock devices. Well, let me clarify. I didn't know much of before I you spoke learned, to though. You Paul Doroshenko. And I wanted to know about how inter- what sort of the, what, how, do, how are interlock devices used in this province to deter drunk driving. And here's what um, Doroshenko had to tell me. Well, the government has uh, something called the, uh, something they call the mandatory criteria matrix. Uh, it's great that they come up with these fantastic, exciting names, but um, they uh, issue uh, points similar to demerit points, but they're basically only with respect to uh, impaired driving or uh, like impaired by alcohol or drugs or, uh, or impaired driving just by alcohol. Uh, and if you accumulate uh, enough of these points, and it's not much, then you end up with an interlock for a minimum of six months. Uh, and then you can end up with an uh, uh, order that compels you to have an interlock for several years. And, of course, you can only drive that vehicle that's got an interlock in it. You can't, drive, you, you know, you can't rent a car. You can't rent a truck. You can't drive a, a piece of farm equipment. You can't drive a piece of construction equipment if it's anywhere on uh, anything close to being a road or highway. Okay, that obviously sounds problematic for people Mm -hmm. who would have that device. Yes, and if you have two vehicles, you have to install them into both vehicles, and it's actually really expensive. When I was speaking to Paul Doroshenko about this, I was under the impression that you install the interlock device into your car. It's a one-time fee, right? Like, just for installation. Um, I was wrong. It is about <laughs> it's about th- under $3,000 a year because it includes monitoring and, and uh, sort of stuff that goes along with that. If it if there's a failure, yeah, they have Wait to a minute. fix so it. If it's 
$3,000 a year yeah. to have that interlock device. That means these people in Quebec are going to be paying that every yes. year for the rest of their lives. Definitely. So if you're 10 more years, 30 grand, 20 years, 60 grand. So it's, it's really expensive. And uh, You know what's a lot cheaper? Not drinking and well, driving. Well, arguably, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I, that was something that came up uh, when I spoke to Paul Doroshenko about you know, his thoughts about this legislation yeah. because he's challenged our own impaired driving laws here in BC. Many so times. I just wanted to know, what do you think about what's going on in Quebec? Here's what he said. Every province has their different way of approaching it, and they always say that the intent is deterrent. Uh, and I've never found that the potential punishment has been a significant deterrent. Their concern as they lay it out is is repeat offenders, so second and third time uh, impaired drivers. That's understandably a concern. It's not that many people in my experience. Uh, most people are not recidivists. Once they've had their uh, one time that they faced a judge, they uh, never want to be back in that circumstance again, and that uh, searing pain of going to court is uh, often a deterrent, but um, their concern is the, is the second-timers, and what they've come up with is, is lifetime interlock. Uh, if it's your second conviction, you can apply to get rid of it after 10 years, but uh, that's pretty extreme. Um, you know, 10 years with an interlock, you're probably looking at about $30,000 of interlock expense, right? Um, and is it necessary? Again, you can't drive a rental car, you can't rent a truck, you can't operate a piece of equipment, um, you know, a riding lawnmower could put you in trouble. Uh, 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 can't drive a motorcycle because you can't put an interlock on a motorcycle. So there's all of these things, and of course, you you know, if you if you have two vehicles, uh, you have to have an interlock in both vehicles if you if you wish to drive it. So you know, this could be a, a huge expense to people, and it's really like it, it's. I, I don't know that. Once it's out there and people start to see it on the ground that they're going to have the same sort of level of support for it. That's Paul Doroshenko from Acumen Law talking about Quebec's uh, impaired driving legislation. Interesting. He says that he doesn't really think that deterrent is a big thing that works. I, I would kind of disagree with him because, I mean, just hearing that Quebec legislation, that would scare me. The price tag attached to having an interlock yeah. <laughs> device installed in your car is huge. And it, I do think that that, punish, that idea of that, that severe of a punishment uh, would deter me from, I mean, I, I also agree with him when he said about education. Like, I think that idea of paying $30,000 for 10 years of an interlock device in your car would deter me from ever thinking about driving while under the influence. But also, he is right that we have seen that education has really worked in certain areas. Like, it's not enough. We've been doing this for 40 years now. Like, yeah. hammering, impaired driving, hammering it, and yet, obviously, not enough because people still do it. But I do think that people in my, because I'm in my 30s, and, you know, when I was uh, in high school, we had a lot of information around uh, drunk driving and also uh, speed, like racing, and that was a big deal when I was in high school, people that were racing on the highways and stuff. Hmm. And so I do think that, you know, people, I do see people of my age totally they're against drunk driving completely so i do think education has really helped but yeah slapping a big fine and also the embarrassment of having to get into your car and blow into an interlock for the device. rest of your life yeah i do think it is a deterrent for sure um i would love to know what our listeners think because currently as i mentioned earlier 68 people die every year in crashes involving impaired driving so I was wondering if, if we would support I don't know. something like what they're doing in Quebec here, having repeat offenders have to blow into an interlock device installed in their vehicles in order to start that vehicle for the rest of their life. 
Well, Claire asked. Let's find out. Uh, give us a call. 604-280-9898. Thank you very much, Claire. Would, do you support the idea of BC cracking down as hard as Quebec is on impaired drivers?